Money Mind, expanding your mind when it comes to money matters. Here's your host, Tanya Carlson from Amplify Wealth Management. So I'm very excited to learn more about today's guest. Uh, Donald Griffin is an Irish migrant, a talented wordsmith with a sharp wit and an enviable flair for storytelling. He's known by many and could even be referred to by some as the rock star of estate planning. Donald is admitted as a lawyer in New South Wales, Australia and Ireland and has over 25 years experience. He has a master's degree in wills and estates. He practices in the areas of of estate planning asset protection, estate litigation, family trusts, and business succession planning. He's recently collated some of his experiences and learnings in a book called An Irish Book of Living and Dying, A Migrant's Tale. I'm going to be talking a little bit about that today. Welcome to the show, Donald. Thank you, Tanya. Thanks for having me. No problem. I like to get started by asking everybody the same two questions. One of them is very relevant to our discussion today. The first question I normally ask is, can you tell me about your cultural upbringing and background? Okay. (laughs) Um, Well, just to clarify your very kind introduction, Rockstar of Estate Planning, I would never say that. At my most self-indulgent, I might say, somebody described me as the lawyer's lawyer. Well, well, I thank just you very much. Jazzed it up I, a bit, right? Yeah. No, and unfortunately, there's a little bit of rock star in my background, but it, it's that. definitely a failed rock star. So, oh. um, yeah, my my stories. I've been here for twenty years, but come from Ireland as a lawyer, brought up as an Irish Catholic, and uh, came over to Australia as a as a social um, refugee. Uh, came here for an adventure. Yes, and um, that's that's kind of I've been reflecting in my book about what the hell that was all about (laughs) Um, and I'm making sense of it now so great yes that's where I come from my second question is a is a quick one it's are you a spender a saver or an in-betweener um I would say I'm an in-betweener I historically would have been a saver and now I'm trying to throw the money around a little bit more because I'm aware, with particularly with COVID, I say to my partner, we might never get another chance to fly to these places. So let's um, let's not budget as if we need to go a um, hundred times. It might be ten times. True, true. Really interesting, actually, how perspectives, I guess, are changing um, by going what we're doing by what's going on in the world. You mentioned your social trip to Australia, and I was going to start there actually, um, in that you you first came to Australia as a backpacker, and you know I I've, well I should I should start by saying that I'm halfway through your book. I did promise to do some speed reading, and the speed reading meant that I had to speed read the second half of the book. So oh, you know I what happens know. in the end? Oh, it's well, yeah, I guess, uh, which is that you know the best part, and probably the second half of the book. Um, is is where all the good stuff happens. But um, I guess I was really fascinated with your story about backpacking around Australia. You had a very clever way of making money while you did that, um, using a squeegee. Would you like to tell us something about that? Yes. So we were here in 91, 92, we being my cousin and a good friend of mine. And uh, New South Wales was in a recession at the time. Uh, People were losing their jobs. You, if you were lucky, you could get a job making sandwiches for $6 an hour. Mm-hmm. And we would, we would generally lose those jobs to gorgeous Swedish um, 
backpackers. So things were looking a little bit grim. And then I noticed somebody cleaning windscreens at a traffic light at the corner of City Road and Broadway in Sydney. And I thought, wow, what on earth are they doing? I hung around, loitered, watched for a while and then realized they were getting money. So I suggested to my buddies we should try it. And we went to the corner of Broadway and Abercrombie Street. And um, uh, because, you know, respecting each other's patches um, and and slightly scared of the guys who were doing it (laughs) at City Road. Um, And um, all of a sudden a a mini business was born and uh, we found that we would do quite well. And uh, we were in control of our own hours and um, it was kind of fun and thrilling and exciting. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I really, um, I really love that story and watched you. Well, I guess journey with you um, as you travelled around the country doing such things, which is it's always amazing how in, in inventive we can become when we need to be. Isn't it? That's right. Yes. It was that or starve or yeah. ask for money from home, yeah. which would have taken no. a while to come anyway. Yes, exactly. And I, and I guess in a way it's it's similar to the way people are living a little bit at the moment. You know, the, the word pivot gets thrown around a lot um, in COVID times and, and, you know, I certainly hate the word but, but can't help but use it at times. But I think that's basically what we do when we need to. That's right. And, and uh, we were also vagabonding before it was a term as well. So right. the, I think the tech people talk about that saying, um you know, maybe don't st- store up all your pennies till you've got enough to live for the rest of your life. Maybe um, equip yourself with some skills and attitudes so that you can make a little bit of money as you go and, and not, you know, wait for the, the sunny day or the rainy day. Um, and that's what we found. Now, you, you migrated to Australia later on uh, so obviously returning back home I think you did a number of travels and and uh, spent some time in the UK as well but you you came back here and I guess for me I was interested to understand how hard it might be to migrate to another country and, and what the driver might be for that is, is it an escape is it a makeover is it an adventure or was it just something that really called to you well, I've been reflecting on that and um, what it was that, that got me to where I am and also what it was that got me to where I came came to Australia. I think for me, it was, like I said earlier, an adventure, um, mm-hmm. a little bit of escape from the world I was in, which was perfectly fine. And I could see a career path lined out for me, but I just thought that's all very predictable and not particularly uh, inspiring. Um, and I wanted to to test um, what the options were. Um, I came with a partner at the time and we broke up pretty quickly. So mm. I, the start was actually quite hard because all of a of sudden, you know, I didn't have um, many support, much of a support network. I have some cousins here who are wonderful, yeah. um, but still I was quite alone and I found that people in Sydney and anywhere, but they had the, you know, if you arrive at age 30 and people have their group of friends and they might say, yeah, let's go for a drink after work, but they'll probably veer off and meet up with their own friends. So it took me, probably took me two years to fully settle in. Yeah, I can, that, that makes sense. In fact, you even mentioned the, the, the social losses or the loss of your social inheritance being 
friends, networks and, and local knowledge. And I think that that's something that um, I would assume has an ongoing effect to some degree. Absolutely. But mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm going out for lunch today with some new friends who I made uh, on a boat. So, you know, sometimes that, that space gets filled. You have to, you, you're motivated to fill that space as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Friend, friends uh, with a boat are the best kinds of friends, aren't they? Exactly. So it's, all, it's all worked out. <laughs> you're finding the right ones. Good for you. Look, there's, there's lots of areas to discuss. Uh, I, I'd like to start with the law. You mentioned in your book that when you left school, you wanted to attend university and study law. And you've, you've made a successful career in that. Was there something that called you to the law from an early age or is it something that you felt was just a, a noble profession? I think I grew up in a house that was um, where we discussed politics and the issues of the day and law was always quite esteemed. And, yeah, uh, I always thought, well, that would be something that I would like to do. And my marks in school meant that I was on a trajectory to, to kind of probably get there. And it just seemed like a, a good idea, but I hadn't really tested it. Yeah. And when I when I went to university and I realized how conservative my classmates were and how business focused they were, I was I was quietly horrified. <laughs> and um, and then you know I realized that the industry was very conservative as well. And Ireland is you know part of the old world. Now it was reasonably genteel. And, you know, having knowing people was helpful. Um, I just thought, oh, this is all a bit cosy and tight. So whereas my friends growing up didn't know what they want to do and were a bit jealous of me being so clear, mm. I probably had my crisis a little bit afterwards. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I go, oh, my God, what is, what is this? And I tried to escape law when I came to Australia for a couple oh. of years. Yes. Um, and I, I, uh, I, I ventured into financial advice and I was a, became a certified financial planner. Yes. Um, and then I realised <laughs> it's tough. It is. I I fully respect um, how hard it is. And financial advisors, good financial advisors, of, of which there are many, and who are not very uh, often publicly uh, lauded, and you know, I include you in that, um, are are hard. You know, they work very hard. And and to be honest, the investment side of things was was my weak point, and I didn't like. Uh, excuse the language, bullshitting and pretending that, you know, when the, the when the things like the, the GFC happened, that I knew what was what was to be done with shares. Um, yeah. I was basically getting information from the investment committee, um, but I wasn't very eloquent and I didn't really believe it. So, mm. um, yeah, the long arm of the law reached back and, um, and welcomed me back and, uh, it's, uh, but I've learned what I learned as in the advice industry and profession is, has been very helpful for my career in law, to be honest. Absolutely. Um, and, and I guess, you know, that sort of leads me into the discussion. And obviously, we'd like to talk a little bit about money and finance here. And we, we ask people to share things. But I actually think that your area of law is, is the money aspect that I'd really like to talk about today because. As you know, being a financial planner, we, we have an obligation to ensure our, our clients understand the importance of an estate plan. But being an estate planning lawyer, and especially one that does estate litigation, uh, you, you, you can assist families to set things up in the right way, but you can also see where, well, certainly when there's nothing being set up, what a disaster that can be, but um, or, or where maybe people haven't had 
holistic advice in this area that it's led to really big problems. Um, how did you get into the estate planning side? Is that something that you did always follow or is that? No, I, I fell into it actually. Um, one of my first jobs in Sydney, I worked at a firm called Henry Davis York, which yes. no longer exists as part of Norton Rose. Um, but the part one partner asked me to help a doctor who was buying a um, her surgery, her rooms in her self-managed super fund. Right. And I had no idea what a self-managed super fund was. I really had to go back to the books and and, and learn it. And that's kind of, that started me into the into the wealth industry because I thought that is very interesting. So this lady can work and pay her super fund rent, get taxed at her marginal rate for her business, which is 30% or 45% if it was she was a sole trader, and the super fund pays tax of 15%. So I thought, well, that is fascinating. And fast forward to yesterday. Um, we bought an office in our super fund. Oh, congratulations. Um, thank you. Um, it was quite hard being a client. I'm full of, I'm full of sympathy, I can tell you. <laughs> I've uh, done the same thing myself, actually. It's quite awful, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, gruesome, gruesome. But once yeah. you get there, that kind of effort pays dividends over time, as you know, and uh, it is a really good uh, uh, structure. So... How did I get into estate planning? I mean, that that sowed a seed for me that actually I wanted to act for business owners rather than businesses. So I was in the commercial department, but I found it much more rewarding to actually talk to the owners of the business and 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 hear about their families and what their money was for and and the interesting trajectory of their lives and and the challenges that they were meeting and. Um, you know, in that firm, Henry Davis York, they had let their private client lawyers go. So the big end of town had considered that personal legal work was was not rewarding enough. So I disagreed, and it it meant that there's quite a big gap in in Sydney, in particular, for people who who really need advice personally. But they tend to get it from their corporate. If they've got a business, it tends to be their business lawyer, and he's not a special. He or she is not usually a specialist in it, um, and it's reasonably complicated. So I've built a quite a, a nice niche for myself in this area. Yeah. And I would say, while estate litigation can focus people's minds on what what can go wrong, I think even if there's no potential dispute, people need to be aware that their money, and by money I mean that can include their life insurance. So if they, they're young and they've got young kids, but they take life insurance out for a couple of million dollars to pay mortgage and so on, the reality is their children might well get that money at age 18. Yeah. So I've done a lot of research and got some mentoring from the US and, and to the point where um, my next book is called Be a Better Ancestor. Mm. And it's just being mindful that people... You know, if you live in Sydney and you own your own house, it's worth a million dollars at least. If you have a mortgage, you might well have met a financial advisor who might properly say you should have an insurance policy. So pretty quickly, people can have three million dollars very easily. And if you've got two kids, that's one and a half million dollars each. And that it could be a death sentence to a child. I mean, it could be the the absolute worst start. And um so I, I've really got into the 
I'm interested in the psychology of it and, and people just don't think about it. So I feel my role is to, to help people and, and, and steer them if they're ready to have that chat. Absolutely. And, and I agree, right, people don't think about it. And it's interesting, the title of your book, um, An Irish Book of, of Living and Dying. And in fact, in the beginning part, you do refer to in your education as a young boy in Ireland, that death seemed to be quite a common topic. Do you think that's different in Australia? I, I, I believe we don't talk about death enough, even though it's not a nice topic, but it, it's, Absolutely. it's funny, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, in Ireland in the 70s, before everything became fabulous and we had a Celtic tiger economy and now everybody's <laughs> living, you know, beyond their means, everything was very quite dark and dreary and, uh, you know, we our charm, I guess, would be something along the lines of um, how to live a life in a in a battle that you're bound to lose. I mean, people did not get ahead of themselves. People, it was it was life is tough, so that meant you're empathetic to other people. You didn't have great hopes and dreams. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I came to Australia, people would say, "Oh, she'll be right." If, if I mentioned something that was a little bit possibly might not work out, she'll be right, mate. Yes. So I thought, what, what on earth is this, <laughs> <laughs> this optimism? And yes. surely it's wrong. Like, it's mm. not always going to be right. So anyway, I reflected on it and um, I decided that the best way to approach, neither was probably absolutely correct, but the truth was somewhere in the middle, and that is to treat life like a near-death experience. So, uh, and I noticed that people who had near-death experiences uh, who dodged a bullet with a heart attack or a diagnosis but then recovered, lived their lives totally differently. And they often, um, they're talking about the great resignation now. Well, you know, that happens at a, at a hospital bed by hospital bed level. Uh, and people go, right, I'm going, to, I'm going to be an artist. You know, I always said I would. I'm going to do that. Or I'm going to quit my job. Or I'm going to go and travel. Um, or I'm going to act differently in a particular relationship. Or I'm not going to take abuse or uh, I'm really going to do what I want. So that's, I feel like anything, if you're really aware of how precious the time is, you will make the most of it. Whereas if you're distracted and we're all very easily distracted by work, social media, whatever it is, money, fear, greed, um, you you can can forget about that. So I, I feel a combination of both. I think I love the Australians' optimism mm. and attitude, and the Irish can absolutely be too negative. So um, it's helped me find the path that I feel is is appropriate for my for my life. Mm. And I, I think you know, for for want of finding better words to describe that, I'm noticing a lot of conversation with people um, since we've had COVID. Actually, so in the last eighteen months, where there's more. Um, discipline around potentially uh, applying oneself to trying a little bit harder every day um, in in some capacity or or having direction and purpose or having some clarity or or learning to say no to things or not being so caught up by, as I've always said, is, is, you know, one of the worst sins is comparing thyself to someone else um, and trying to live what looks like their life because that looks better rather than making your own life better. You know, it's something that's always fascinated me about humans and I I sort of see a real shift and change and I don't know whether we'll fall back into familiar patterns as for want of a better word again normalcy returns but um, I do see people trying a little bit harder 
now. And I think that that's going to be interesting. Uh, I don't know that it necessarily reflects to thinking about their um, demise and, and what then happens with their family. But, you know, it's, it's also an interesting conversation to look at wealth. And I know you particularly have uh, expertise in significant wealth. And, and a lot of people say to me, um, you know, if I had more money, I'd be able to be happier and I'd be, you know, able to do all these things. And, and in my experience, the people with significant wealth have a completely different set of complexities and, and problems. Uh, and, and in fact, some of them far more serious and, and difficult to navigate. Do you have any thoughts on that or any suggestions on how people can make their wealth become, <laughs> I'm going to get into this word legacy, <laughs> um, but become a better legacy for families or, or themselves? Sure. Sure. Well, look, I agree with you that COVID has uh, changed how people think. And um, something that I'm noticing is that because we've been at home with our families, we have a greater sense of what they're like. And we've all had this unifying experience, which was, you know, a struggle at some level for most people. And um, I think parents, and particularly males, who might have traditionally been less likely to be at home, have all of a sudden seen how much of a handful their children are. Or, or uh, <laughs> Is that uh, personal experience? <laughs> it sure is, sure is. And from my polling, I find that's true. But, but not just a handful, but also, yeah. you, know, uh, you know, how they've struggled a little bit and, um, and our partners have struggled. So we've really, it's like being, having been on a camping holiday that's gone on a bit too long. Yes. And so we're more aware of each other's weaknesses and hopefully some strengths. But it, because it was a challenging time, I think we saw that we saw more of the stresses. But mm. I think um, people are a bit more family focused and um, have been disabused of any sense that uh, all the kids will be fine. And, mm. you know, they go to a good school. They're doing well. Their, their marks are fine. They're going to be just like me, little mini CEOs. You know, mm. I've no worry. But actually, they've seen them having meltdowns and, you know, um, not thinking straight and, uh, and you know, struggling. So mm. I think family is, um, I think we're all more aware of the strengths and weaknesses of our families. So but going back to the wealth thing then, um, absolutely, uh, wealth, people with wealth have a different set of problems. And one of the problems they have is that there's an expectation that their lives should be perfect. So mm. they have the Sydney optimism, optimistic um, flash lifestyle on steroids. Mm -hmm. And there's a bit of a sense out there, and especially if they've got a name that's well known, um, people do take a little bit of glee, the tall poppy syndrome, mm -hmm. in seeing somebody who, who, who they would have thought was more polished and more able for the world having a meltdown or a failure of some sort. Uh, and there's an expect so that there is a greater expectation on these people and to, to live perfect lives. And of course, perfect lives are not possible. And mm -hmm. um, they also have there's a big difference between people who create money and people who inherit money. And the creators don't understand the inheritors because the creators didn't sit around waiting to inherit money. They got up and did what they what they did and it's it's really they're wired quite differently a lot of the time That's and true. the inheritors can be um wired differently as well and 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 somehow uh, get a sense of well i don't actually have to go out and graft 
um, because wouldn't that be silly because I'm going to get a big inheritance and mum and dad will help me. So, uh, and, and a lot of this is not discussed as well. So it's all, you know, this guesswork and the, the, the creators sometimes are a bit disappointed in their kids because they think, you know, they feel pleased with themselves and they feel that's a noble life to go out and graft and, and build something, but they've actually made it harder for their kids to graft uh, because of the lifestyle that they have. And, um, there can be a little bit of resentment and disappointment, which which uh, can be expressed or not expressed. Um, but I guess it comes out in the end at some at some way. So uh, I'm deeply sympathetic. As my mum uh, said to me when I was young, I said, "Apparently, somebody has to love the rich girls." <laughs> so, so I'm the one. I'm happy to love the rich clients. I, um, I, I wish my parents gave me that advice, actually. <laughs> no, I gave it to myself. Oh, I worked right, it okay. myself. Yeah, yeah. Good on you, yeah. It's a, it's a good one. And I had a thought which I've, which I've since lost in that silly comment, so that'll teach me. Um, yeah, look, it's, it's, it's definitely fascinating. And, and I think sometimes, you know, you and I are in the business of, of managing human behaviours uh, sometimes and, and identifying patterns in what we see um, with different, uh, from, from, from where people come from. It's often why I like to talk about people's background and up, upbringing and ask questions in meetings about how they, how they manage things and how they make decisions even because that leads to further analysis or maybe understanding is a better word of, of what might be ahead in, in sort of helping them achieve what they need to achieve. In your book, you encourage everybody to give an account of themselves as part of their legacy and, and you stated that you've decided to write this book so that your son doesn't have to waste time figuring out who his father is and and, and perhaps understanding some of your view of your worlds and, and as you use the word worlds being I assume Ireland and Australia and, and they are quite different worlds why well firstly I guess what's led to prompting you to do that um, and then why do you think it's important for others to do that what led to it was having um myself and my partner having a child. We've just got the one, a boy. He's 14. But as you know, once you become a parent, you, the world looks differently. Yeah. And you start to think about your parents differently and think about what kind of parents do you parent do you want to be? And you realise it's not that easy. So I started reflecting on my parents and in particular my father, who was a, how would I describe him, a... a um, he was a bit disappointed with his life mm. and he had a few disappointments and he struggled. Yes. And I thought about what role modeling he gave me or he was capable of giving me. And it was, a, it was, you know, it was quite, uh, it was quite sad to think about how he, he was quite withdrawn from the world. And um, yes. I thought, I'm not going to do that. And there were various attempts from my dad to try and explain himself, but they were never good enough from my point of view. And they were always very late. And I thought I should, it would have been much better if he had explained himself or how he, how he, how he was to us. Now it might have been, it might not have been possible for him, but mm. I feel he could have tried a lot harder and we would have been better prepared for the world um, as a result. So. I thought I'm not going to make that mistake and I'm going to be accountable 
the good things and the bad things and be honest and transparent and open. So I decided to try and write out my story. And by writing it out, actually, it was quite therapeutic. And mm-hmm. as a, one of the nice things was that I, it helped me with my relationship with my dad. So I felt better. It, it became a bit more resolved, if you like. Yeah. And I saw him as, like you said earlier, um, human behavior. I saw him as part of a pattern uh, from his house and um, you know, the upbringing that he would have had. So, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it. My um, son did it take you, Donald, to write the book? Well, it took me quite a while. Yeah. I would say I, I probably spent a decade writing it. Right. From, from first <laughs> from first putting pen to paper. But I noodled and it was it was it, it was more like a hobby like fishing where you might go fishing three times a year. You know, it it really it went nowhere and I didn't catch any fish for quite a long time. So <laughs> It was just my little project, and if we would go on a holiday, I would bring my notepad or whatever thing I was scribbling on, and then I'd tinker with it. And it also gave me an excuse to read hundreds of other books and to see how other people did it and to work out what I liked and what I didn't like. And um, it really helped me kind of fine-tune a bit of a manifesto uh, for for what I want my life to be going forward. So rather than write a memoir at the end of a life, I thought let's do it in the middle somewhere. And it's really um, fired me up and made me quite clear about what I want to do. And look, it's a nice legacy doc thing for my son. I was I was petrified I'd get hit by a bus while it was unfinished. <laughs> and I said to my partner, I kept saying to her look, this thing is on this drive on my computer. Can you promise me that you will send it to somebody good to edit and make it readable? And and she promised me, but I was really worried (laughs) that she wouldn't do it. So I looked left and right. (laughs) Yeah, as I crossed the road, I was very careful. So anyway, that that is good. And um, yeah, I thought, why not encourage people? And, And I think it is good for families and the family families that I see it's very interesting to watch dynamics and we all just assume we'll be good parents because we love our children, but we bring our baggage with us and um, we don't necessarily know any better and we don't always know ourselves that well. And some of our, you know, we might have a sibling who really irritates us or a parent that we clash with and all of this stuff is um, it plays out. Um, and I've been studying family systems, actually, which has been very interesting. Yeah. Um, and, and, and about the family is an emotional unit. So, you know, some people will have a bit of a meltdown and say, right, I want to go, go and see a therapist. And a therapist will talk to them and, and, and listen to them and, and, and kind of help them. But they're, they're one fish in the pond. I don't know where I've come up with this metaphor today, but yeah. they are only but one fish. And um, families are such powerful, unexamined units that um, we end up playing a role and behaving a certain way because some of the other roles are taken and it might not be a deliberate choice and it's just the way it is so um, sometimes looking at a family dynamic is uh, is 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 more helpful than just um, one person the person who's cried out for help really understanding themselves if the other fish don't really understand themselves yeah, that's, that's actually really interesting. I guess we don't think about the family structure enough and, and, you know, 
terms like the black sheep of the family and so on uh, would come from that, somebody adopting that role to be different or, or, like you say, I hadn't ever thought of that perspective that perhaps another role was already taken. My dad's one of 11 Irish Catholic. Um, wow. So I would imagine that, you know, that there's, there's only so many roles in, in most families anyway to, uh, and, and he always referred to himself as the tent peg. Uh, he had five either side. Um, right. So he, he, yeah, and he really, you know, when I when I reflect on that now, and, and I don't assume he will listen to my podcast, so I'm probably not going to offend him. But but I think he actually really lived his life by by being the tent peg, and sort of being the the strong one in the middle. It's probably reasonably important, but never never viewed himself as as, as important, um, which is interesting as well. So. Yeah, really fascinating to reflect on that sort of family structure. And, and obviously that leads into the nature of your work and, and the things that you see and, and, and an enormous case law reading. I imagine you're reading all the time. But, but obviously that's a hobby for you, given when I when I read your book, and, and again, only halfway um, in detail, I was astounded by the amount of reading that you must do. I, I consider myself a, a reader, but um, I'm terrible at recall and you know uh, maybe when you're writing it, it can be easier to recall information by by going and looking at it and, and looking forward and wanting to recall but certainly in discussion I always find that a little bit challenging it's probably my skitzy brain at times but um <laughs> oh but, look I I certainly don't remember things and okay, I could <laughs> our, our house is full of books with the yellow stickers in them and yeah. that was kind of that was one of one of the prompts that's your book with my my stickers um <laughs> I'm glad to see that. It's a good sign. Um, yes. Yeah, but look, there's, there's, there's bits and pieces, of, there's gems there, and I don't remember them, so I like to have a shortcut to, to kind of uh, to go and find them. But, um, I mean, just thinking about your dad's role, you know, I think somebody said that if you compromise, if you're always compromising, everybody likes you except yourself. Mm-hmm. And um, I think there is in society there's a real pressure to to compromise and fit in, but that leaves people feeling a little bit empty because they they feel they're playing a you know it's not really their true self that that is expressed. Yes. And as you get a little bit older, I was talking to my son last night. We were listening to music, and he was he would share a song from Spotify, and then I would share one, and we'd both kind of pretend we liked the others. Uh, but it was still, it was a nice moment. But uh, it was just interesting to kind of really express who you are. And I was saying some things which were a little bit outrageous. And I said, when you're older, you don't care what, you care less what people say. I said, this is, I, you know, I said, I know this might not be politically correct or, you know, um, what you would say. You would, in school, you would be, you know, slated for saying X or Y. I said, well, I'm just too old. I don't care. And yeah, it's, uh, it's quite, it's quite, it's quite satisfying to be the slightly older person who who doesn't care, who cares less what people think. Very true, and, and I think when when we sit with clients who are older, again, uh, sometimes I, I can be quite astounded by the abruptness that can come out in in sentences from people that that I assume have gone that next level, which is. I'm not even going to be nice about how I say it. I'm just going to spit it right out. <laughs> and hopefully it is offensive. I, I think sometimes that's their target, you know. Yes, yeah. Um, so that's that's interesting. Again, perhaps we lose the ability to um, care uh, or, or, or maybe we're just 
hoping for a little bit of shock factor because it's fun. Don't know. <laughs> we have to wait till we get there. Um, I mean, you did mention, and my sticker in, in the book is actually right at the very beginning where you talked about a, a legacy is not just passing our money on and um, that we can bequeath our stories, our joys, our traumas and our hopes. And I thought that that was really interesting because it's true that poor family dynamics can get passed down the line. And and then you even said there that that you wanted to be a good ancestor and that's that's now led you into your, your second book. So how far along are you on the second book? Well, interestingly, I've pretty much written it, uh, but I've paused because I'm doing this course on, on branding, mm. which sounds a little bit um, light and fluffy, but actually it's about really finding your true voice. Mm. And... Um, it's I'm, I'm I'm enjoying it, and I feel like I have found, found my voice. But in terms of my corporate voice, I have a little bit of a, a middle ground so that I don't um, offend anybody, perhaps. And I'm I'm you know people can can feel they can they can work with me. Um, whereas actually there is a possibility of being a bit more of a leader and saying, yeah, look, I can walk down this middle ground, but actually I'm a little bit on this side of, of the ground and this is my patch and this is my passion if you like and I think um I'm so I'm gonna I'm probably gonna spin it through that uh, filter mm-hmm. so that it really is um not corporate but um really is my voice and you know one of the big learnings from from um one of my mentors in the US is he talks about wealth and people who come into money and 90% of people who are very well off come from working class or middle class stock. And the metaphor Jim Grubman uses with Dennis Jaffe is they are migrants to the land of wealth. Mm -hmm. So it fits in with my migrants tale. And the idea is that they come from one world and end up in another. And whether they assimilate, integrate, avoid, or are paralyzed, is there, they've basically got four options. And the ones who, who assimilate are a bit like the Jay Gatsby's uh, from The Great Gatsby, who pretend they, they've reinvented themselves and they don't acknowledge where they've come from. And of course, that's you know built on sand. So um, the ancestor is it's it's the idea. It's quite consoling to me to realise that um, you know our influence is not massive in the scheme of the universe, but it is important. We are a little ladder <laughs> uh, rung on the ladder, and how we behave and, and are in the world will have an impact certainly on, on next generations. And it's not just a balance sheet. It's, um, you know, it's an ethic or values um, and role modeling and um, maybe a bit of inspiration, hopefully, uh, or solace or whatever. So I think uh, it's helpful to see yourself as very small um, and part of the evolutionary uh, process and, and as ancestors. And I guess we, you know, any of those of us who, who have children certainly are ancestors. Absolutely. And I, I think it's a, it's a great concept to start to think about that in context with our own families and, and help us think about how we go about it every day, really, to, to sort of have an impact on that. What's one thing 
people are going to be listening today, um, I can't recall what the statistics are, but I know it's enormous amounts of people that don't have a will, don't necessarily understand what an enduring power of attorney is or enduring guardianship. What's one thing that you would like people to uh, understand or maybe know about estate planning? Oh, there's loads of things, but I guess just the con- in the context of what we've discussed, even a will, which is not enough. I tell people you've got to write your story and or leave something more. But even if, if you leave a will, it at least uh, the children can, the people you leave behind, your spouse and children can understand that you have made a decision. You have thought about them and hopefully shared things reasonably, equally or fairly. Um, if you do not leave a will, there can be this lingering sense of well he didn't care maybe he doesn't want me to maybe if if there, if there are three kids and everything's divided equally you know maybe one of those kids might feel well maybe he didn't want me to get a third maybe I am the black sheep and I'm getting this by accident so I guess to be a bit directional and deliberate and and show leadership and and um you know, what, what you're thinking. So I think it's important to name people in mm-hmm. certain roles. And if there isn't a power of attorney or enduring power of attorney, people have to apply to the uh, NCAT, to the guardianship tribunal, and there can be an argument um, yes. about who, who should be making certain decisions. So I think um, do something, make decisions, and then don't keep secrets. Uh, people don't like secrets in families. Um, secrets are, are really a way of saying, I don't trust you with this information or, or it can be interpreted that way. So I would say no surprises. Trusts are very helpful. We're believers in trusts. Yeah. Um, a lot of lawyers don't believe in them. Um, and if you don't have a will, you certainly won't have a trust. So there's good tax advantages and asset protection advantages of having a trust. So I would. I would suggest people strongly consider that. Definitely. Yeah, I believe it's very important. How can people find you, Donald, and how can they find your book? Well, we have a website at www.legacylaw.com.au. And on that website, I think on the far right, there's a button that says book. And they can press that and we will be delighted to uh, help them get a hard copy or uh, an ebook on um, on their uh, provider of choice, um, but that is the best way to contact us. Fantastic! Well, I, look, I would encourage everybody to to seek this book out. I actually think it's a really lovely story, and it has you know has got me thinking about the the, the whole idea of, of I guess um, having an account of yourself and and having some reflection there because uh, as you say, a lot of family noise is interpretation and, and what 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 your children may interpret as your decisions may be very different from what your intention was, which which can be very uh, take take people down a completely wrong path potentially. So it's it's fascinating stuff. Um, I think we wanted to give away a book uh, to one of our listeners and, and that's always a tricky thing. So I'm thinking we may come up with a strategy maybe by, by sharing uh, the podcast on social media and perhaps we'll we'll have a, a word in there like legacy law and maybe the first person that types that in can, can be that winner. Um, that way we'll challenge people to actually get through this whole episode. <laughs> Bribe them to the end, why not? Um, Good idea. But, 
Look, I really appreciate your time today and, and I think it's been a great discussion and, and again, my congratulations on the book. I, I'm really enjoying it and I, I promise I won't just be satisfied with my speed read to the end. I'll go back and finish it properly. Well, thank you, Tanya. It's, it's always lovely chatting to you. It's nice to see the big picture and uh, good, good, good work with your, your podcast and your practice. Ho- hopefully I'll see you before long. I'm sure we're we're out and about now, so um, it's you know there's there's always something going on, isn't there? So I'm sure we'll we're running to each other, possibly at a Christmas party, which is always the nice time of year. Um, so stay well, and uh, as I like to say to everybody, think before you spend. Um, and thanks for listening. This podcast is for general information only. It contains brief comments not intended to be the basis for decision making, nor to be taken as a substitute for personal advice. Please contact Amplify Wealth Management to discuss any matters that may be relevant to your individual situation. Money Mind. If you have any questions about your financial future, please head to amplifywealth.com.au. Money Mind is available to download and subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts.